It is a joy to be here today. It's a great honor. Um, Dan, I appreciate that, all the words that you said. Um, I love you guys, Jeremy and Diana. I don't know where you're at, but I love you guys too. Uh, you know, it is true that Jeremy, Jeremy lived in our home, Dan lived in our home, Fee lived in our home all at different times. What we found out is the only way to get a British person out of your house if they're living here is get them married. And so we had to get them married and they moved out, but it was a great joy having them there. Uh, thank you for sending Dan to Guatemala. He was a tremendous blessing to the churches there. The impartation that he brought launched the churches into a, a whole new measure of God's grace and his purposes in Guatemala. Uh, Dan's been there twice and both times that he's come, it's been a tremendous impartation. Um, you know, it's also a joy to be here because I see some faces I recognize, and you know, sometimes in life, people die, and, and you sit there and you think, man, I wish, I wish I'd have told them something. And uh, there are men that, and women that pour into your life, right? And uh, I just want to honor a man. Sorry about that. I, I want to honor a man who's had a huge impact in my life. Of course, I'm going to talk about Jesus, but Jesus uses people, right? And I just want to thank John. Thank you, John. Enough said. <laughs> That's why I'm taking this opportunity. John uh, poured into us when we were younger. I was a teenager in uh, New Covenant Church, Mike Stevens. I, I am what I am because of Mike Stevens. He, uh, he a godly man, uh, taught faithfully seven years in the church there. And um, many times now, you know in life, things come to mind out of the word, and you think, where did that come from? I don't remember taking that in, but boy, it sure is good. And... Uh, I know a lot of that came from Mike Stevens, his faithful line upon line teaching out of the kings and judges and Joshua and Abraham and the gospels and, and many things that I know in Christ are because of him. So I know he's not here, but maybe he'll hear this and I just want to say thank you, Mike. And um, so there's another man I want to honor and his name is Jesus because, you know, the Lord uses men and women to change our lives, but there is no one who transforms us like Christ. Yeah. Christ comes to us, he, he takes us where we are, draws us to himself, and then he begins walking with us. And we fail him a thousand times over, and yet he never gives up, and he's always there. And all we need to do is say, Lord, forgive me, yet again. And he says, come on, son, let's walk. I want to talk about him today. So if you would turn to Revelation 5, Revelation chapter 5. I heard a message about 30 years ago by a man named Ern Baxter. I have to give him credit. I heard a message that so gripped my heart. And over the years, the Holy Spirit has taken that and caused it to grow until it has become my word and it has become something he's revealed to me. And that's what I want to bring today, about the greatness of our king. He is a great king. I used to think of Jesus as a 90-foot man. I did. You know, I'd sit there and I'd think, no, 
know, Jesus, okay, so like he's, so I know he was a man, and he went into heaven, he still has a physical body, but like he must be like this gargantuan thing, you know, because like he's God. When I was going through seminary, I realized, you know what? Actually, there was this statement in, in systematic theology by Wayne Grudem. He said this, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he put on his glorified physical body. He was a man, and he will remain so forever. Our great champion is a man. He is God. Make no mistake about it. But he's a man. When he ascended from the when he rose from the dead, the people recognized him, so he must still be like something like about that tall. I don't know, somehow they knew him. They're like, hey, hey, you're, <laughs> you're Jesus. Yeah. He's our great friend. He's our brother. He's our captain. He's our king. And I want to encourage us today from Revelation chapter 5. You know, uh, it's my son, Jonathan. It was his 13th birthday this year. And for years, he's been asking me, Dad, can I have a... For my birthday, I want to have a paintball party. You guys know what that is, where they put the little, yeah. In St. Louis, there was a place right next to my house, and it's kind of expensive, so we kept putting him off. Son, when you become a teenager. Son, when you become a teenager. Son, when you become a teacher. So this year, he turned 13. He's like, Dad, I'm a teenager. Can I have a paintball party? All right, all right, we're doing a paintball party. So we did a paintball party. He got all of his friends together. Some of the fathers showed up, so there's a big crowd. You know, we divvy up the teams, and my John, Daniel, who was a 10-year-old at the time, said, Dad, can I come? I said, sure. So he came along, so he divvied up the team, you know, and here's Daniel, the 10-year-old, and I said, Daniel, which team do you want to be on? You know, you're the, you're the last one. You, you can choose. And like a wise young man, he said, well, whatever team wins, which team is that? I'm going to be on that team. <laughs> He's a wise man. <laughs> choose the winning team. Wouldn't it be nice to know what team is going to win the World Series, put all your ducks right there, you know? Not that I'm a gambling man, but anyway. If you knew, wouldn't it be great to know how the NFL season is going to turn out? Kind of know in advance. Wouldn't it be kind of cool being on the inside of it, inside track every time you go to work and talk about it? It's like, yeah, we're going to win this week. You watch, he's going to throw for three touchdowns. It's going to be awesome. Wouldn't it be awesome? Being a little more serious, don't you sometimes wish that you knew how that situation was going to turn out? What's your situation today? What is it? Is it a relationship? Is it a family member that's struggling? Is there a breakdown between you and another? Is there a conflict, a confrontation that is staring you in the face that's going to come about in the next few days? Is it a job? Is it a business deal? Is it a health issue? What is that situation that stares you? Wouldn't it be nice to know the outcome? Yeah? I find that some of the hardest things in life is to face those. You know the stuff in the Word. You're praying. You're before God. You're worshiping. It's beautiful. But that thing is always there staring at you. How is this going to turn out? What am I supposed to do? How do I, what should I say? You know? The early Christians who the book of Revelation was written to, the early Christians there in the first century, they were dealing with their situation. Their situation was that they were being persecuted, they were being martyred, they were being killed, they were being burned at the stake, fed to lions, their businesses were being taken from them, their families were torn in two. Life is hard. If this was representative of the first century church, and there's 120 people in this room, come back next Sunday, there will be about 100 of us, because 20 will have been fed to the lions. Come back a month later, there might be 80 of us. People were being taken away, disappearing in the night. These people were struggling. They were faced with situations. Yeah, there were some members of their family who were Christians, some weren't. They were turning each other in. 
And it's interesting what the Lord does, how he responds to those folks. Do you know his answer was not to solve their problem? He didn't rescue them from the line. You know what his answer was? The book of Revelation. And no, it is not the revelation of the end times. If you read in chapter 1, verse 1, 2, and 3, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. When, when the apostles and when Jesus wanted to encourage the church, what did he do? He said, here, look at me. He revealed himself because he knew that that would be ultimate encouragement. That would be ultimate solution to the situation that they were walking through. In Revelation, Jesus shows up to John. John, at this point, all of the other 11 apostles are dead. John's the last one. He has been tormented and, 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 and tortured to, re, to renounce Christ, and he wouldn't. So they took him and they dipped him in boiling water, and he still wouldn't renounce, and his skin is melting off his body, and he's been beaten, and so they stick him on a little island by himself. Do you know how God decided to encourage him? Jesus revealed himself. You know what we need in life? Day after day after day. Dan, thank you for praying that prayer. I pray that prayer almost daily for myself and over my family. God, I pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation that I might know you more fully. I pray that you would open the eyes of my heart, that I would understand the hope that I'm called to, that I would understand the glorious inheritance that you have in us. And then I would know the power of the Holy Spirit, that power that was so mighty that raised a dead man from the dead. God, I pray, open my eyes that I would see him because that's really what I need today. If I will only see him, I'm encouraged. Yeah? So my hope is to encourage us. In Revelation chapter 5, this is what it says. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Up until now, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Jesus was saying to John, Hey, write a letter to the churches and encourage them this way. In chapter 4, he calls him up and he says, Check out my father on the throne. Look, he's magnificent. He's holy. He's awesome. He created all things. But you come to chapter 5. In chapter 5, he begins talking about a scroll. He saw a scroll in the right hand of the Lord. A loud angel says, who's worthy to open this? Verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look, in, look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll 
and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you, tra- you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. The voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And they were saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped him. You know, in this in this magnificent book of Revelation, at first, John is enamored with the one who is seated on the throne in chapter 4. But in chapter 5, it's, his attention is zeroed in onto something that is in the right hand of God. There was a scroll in the right hand of God. Now, that's important because the right hand of God is the position of authority of a king. Yeah? It's the, it's the most secure place in a kingdom. Right there at the right hand. There is no more secure place in the entire universe than at the right hand of God. So whatever this scroll is, it must be of extreme importance. Because it is in the most secure, authoritative place in the universe. It is in the hand of Almighty God. At His right hand. He said to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It represents power. It represents authority. But what is this scroll? It's written on both sides. It has seven seals on it. But what is it? It must be important. Because all of a sudden, a loud angel says, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Well, it must have something to do with redemption. It must have something to do with redemption. Because in verse 9, when Jesus takes the scroll, it says you are worthy because with your blood you purchased, you redeemed, you bought back to yourself those who were slaves to sin and sickness, demons, disease, death. You have redeemed them. So whatever this is, it must have something to do with redemption of humankind. Because when Jesus took it, that's the song they sang. Redemption, he's worthy, he's worthy, he's redeemed us, he's redeemed us. Hang on, what did he do? He took a scroll. Well, what's the scroll? The scroll is the title deed to humanity. It is the title deed to history. When I purchased my house years ago, a lot of money, like you guys, you take out those long notes, right? You're paying on it. For years, we were paying it down, and then we decided to start making double payments, you realize that doesn't actually mean you're paying twice the amount. You're, just take, you're paying the principal, right? Twice the principal each month. Then triple payments. And, and, you know, we rallied the family together. At that time, my kids were much younger. And my 20-year-old, who was about 12 at that time, he was really into it. He's into math. He's like, wow, you know, so, like, you just pay a little more and you can pay it off instead of 20 years, like 12 years? Yeah, son. I'll never forget we were on vacation driving out to Colorado, going through Kansas where there's nothing there. 
we were hungry. Uh, we had rented one of those RVs. It was kind of a funny trip, you know. But anyway, we're going across Kansas, and I saw a billboard for a sign. I think it was Denny's or something. I said, hey, guys, you want to go to Denny's? And my son Christian, the 12-year-old from the back, pipes up. He says, Dad, have we paid off the house yet? And I said, uh, no, son, not yet. He goes, well, maybe we could just go to the gas station and get some bread and meat, and Mom can make us sandwiches, and we can put the extra money towards that. Like, I like you. <laughs> if you want to, kids, if you want to score parents with your, the ne next time your parents say, hey, you want to go out to eat? Say, no, let's take the money and make a house payment. <laughs> That's how you score points. <laughs> but when I, when I bought my house, and I paid it off, and we eventually did pay it off, you get this thing called a title deed. On it is the description of your home and all the pertinent information about it. And he who holds the title is in charge of that entire thing. I'm in charge. I can walk in and knock down walls and no one yells at me. I can build anything I want, paint it any color I want. My wife might yell at me, but I'm just saying, you can pretty much, you're king of the house, right? If you have a title to your car, you can do anything you want. You can drive it off a cliff if you want. It's your car. No one's going to yell at you. Shouldn't be in it, but anyway, you, know, you can like shove it over the edge. Don't do that. The title deed. This scroll was the title deed to humanity. It was the deed of history. And whoever was worthy to take it assumed the right to rule history and to determine the outcome of humanity. And John must have known this because as he looked and no one was found worthy, he began weeping. Why? Because he knew humanity is lost. If there's no one to redeem it, we are lost in our sin. We are without hope. We are destined to be apart from God forever. And he wept because no one was found who was worthy. You see, in this grand story that we just see a snapshot of in history, there, there was a backstory to it. In Genesis, when God created man in his image, man and woman, he wanted the world ruled through a representative, Adam and Eve. And so he took the scroll. We're going to pretend. I need to pick on a very, very secure man here. This is Adam and Eve just for today, okay? He created them in his image, and he gave Adam the right to rule on his behalf. Together they were to represent Christ in the earth. They were to represent his rule in the earth. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Reproduce people in your image because you're in my image. And teach them garden life. Teach them what it's like in paradise. And oh, by the way, here's four rivers that are going to flow out to the four corners of the earth so that you can export garden life, kingdom life, God's way of life in the earth. You can do that. Be my representative. You're in charge. But of course, Adam failed. He sinned, right? And God reached down and took that scroll. He says, I'll hang on to it until another man comes who can rule in my stead, and he will do it in perfect obedience to me. And God took the scroll back, and there it sat for millennia in his right hand. You know, the enemy has lied to many in the church. Satan says, I'm the God of the world. I'm in charge. This is my world, and the thing's going to hell in a handbasket. You know, it's not true. It is not. 
Just a little side note. I love this, what it says about the devil. He, he goes around roaring as a lion. You ever notice he always knocks off everything that Jesus is? In Revelation, we read, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The devil roars as a lion. Here's a good comparison. You ever saw the movie um, Wizard of Oz and the lion in there? Okay, let's just stack them up and give some comparison here. That's the devil trying to be a lion. And then you've got Aslan. Anybody ever seen the movie Lion, Witch, and Water? You've got Aslan. You've got the real thing, and you've got the imitation. This is Jesus. That's the devil. He goes around roaring like a lion. I'm going to kill you if you don't do it my way. My way is the best. And Jesus shows up. Well, he doesn't actually do that, right? Usually he comes to us as a lamb. Son, don't do that. Daughter, walk this way. It'll go well for you. Do it this way. Yeah? That's what Mike Stevens taught me to do. That's what John Washko taught me to do. He taught me how to walk with Jesus. And I'm so grateful. God took the scroll back and he held it. It is not Satan's. He is not the God of this world. He is not the God of history. He does not hold humanity under his sway. God held on to it until a man could come who was worthy to take it over. And God held it right here. You know, the significance of this can be seen further if you understand the book of Ruth. If there's any young ladies in here, or older ladies, and you like a good romance story, read Ruth. It is a beautiful story. It is a chick flick in the Bible. Really cute, right? Well, it's more than cute, it's beautiful. Here's Ruth, this beautiful young lady. She is something to behold. She marries this young man from the tribe of Judah. The man, after a few years, tragically dies, and she's a widow. And his land is left unattended. It's not productive. She's there. She has no food. She can't provide for herself. So being a godly lady, she goes out into the field of another because they had a law back then. If you're a widow or a foreigner, you go out into the field. By the way, this has something to do with immigration, which I'm not going to go down that path. But there is immigration is addressed in the Bible, and we are to look after the foreigner and help them become productive citizens of society. I'm not making a political statement. Just go with me here. So she goes out into the field. And there she is. She's following behind these young men who are reaping the harvest. And the law was that you, if anything, as you're reaping the harvest, if anything falls out of the bag, the Lord said, just leave it lay for the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. And they can come behind and pick it up. And so she's picking it up, being a diligent woman, right? She wasn't on welfare. She was out working with whatever ability she had. And provision was made for her. And she's picking it up. And over here on the side is a man named Boaz. If they would have had, you know, uh, TV back then, he would have been Israel's most eligible bachelor. He's a wealthy man, a handsome man, a godly man, a righteous man. For some reason, he's not married, right? And he's out there, and he shows up to the field, and he's checking out his young man, like, how's it going? Man, big bushels, bumper harvest. This is great. <gasps> hey, Charlie, come here. Who is that? Who is that? She's a knockout. And they go, oh, she's, you know, the widow of some such, yeah, and, and so she's got no, so we're letting her, oh, excellent, hey, Charlie, go in front of her and, like, dump a little extra out of your sack, like, like just fill the ground and just really pile it on, you know, and, and so she goes home like that at the end of the day, and Naomi's like, where were you? And she goes, I was with Boaz, man, he's a blessed man. Naomi goes, oh, Boaz, yes, all right, Ruth, here, do this, and 
Like women, you know, they concoct a plan to, never mind. <laughs> These two people fall in love with one another. Boaz in love with Ruth. Ruth in love with Boaz. Boaz decides he wants to marry Ruth, but she's a widow. And there were laws back then. A widow could only marry someone who was called a kinsman redeemer. That would mean someone from the same tribe, right? So Boaz went, here's what he had to do. And it's in the book of Ruth. He went to the city elders. And he would have said to them, I want to marry Ruth. And they would have asked him three questions. Are you able, are you willing, and are you worthy? Are you able to pay the price to redeem that land? There's a value on that land and all that belongs to it. Are you willing to pay the price? And of course he was because he owned most of the land. He was a wealthy man. They said, okay. Are you willing? Is someone manipulating you? Are you getting something out of this? Is someone coercing you or hanging something over your head? No, I willingly come. I love her. I want to marry her. And they would have said, are you worthy? Are you a worthy man? And it says in Ruth, I think it's chapter 3, Boaz was a worthy man. And so there at the city gate, he gave them the money. They would have given him a scroll. They didn't use flat pieces of paper back then. They used scrolls because they're easier to hide and protect. And they would have given him a scroll, and it would have been sealed. He would have given them the money. He would have taken the scroll. And in breaking the seal, he would have redeemed that dead man's land and Ruth. And they would have been married. Here in the book of Revelation, there's a scroll. It represents the land, terra firma, the earth, and all that dwells within it. It all belongs to the Father. But the first Adam died. And we were sold as slaves to sin and sickness and disease and addictions. And those things that so easily entrap us all the time. And, you know, in the church that we're at in St. Louis, there are, there are I'm not exaggerating, there are over a hundred, probably more, a hundred people in there who've been born again out of addictions. Addiction to drugs, alcohol, pornography, wife, wife beating, husband beating, all this stuff. I was talking to one the other day, Lee. Lee stood up. He's a big man, like, you know, 60, 60 years old. He's a big man. And um, he says, yeah. And he's a successful businessman, but he would get stoned drunk all the time. And he says, you know, so many times I was so mean to my wife and my kids and they were going to leave, and I'd tell them, I'm not going to have another drink. He says, and I really meant it. And I would even ask God, God, I'm not going to drink anymore. How do we not drink anymore? He says, but the next day I'd be drinking again. I just had to drink. He was addicted. He was a captive of sin. In this scroll of human history, representing the world and all that is in it, John knew that this world is filled with people who they sin, but they don't want to, but they do it. And, and they say, I'm not going to do it. And they keep falling into it. When would one come? A second Adam, the last man, Adam. When would he come? And there in the ascension, when Jesus ascends, he, he rises from the dead, appears for 40 days, and then he ascends into heaven. Here he comes, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the question would have been this. Are you able, are you willing, and are you worthy? Well, he was able to pay the price for humanity. His blood was rich enough. It says in verse 9, With your blood you purchased people for God from every nation, tribe, kindred, and spirit. You purchased them. His blood was enough. He was wealthy enough to pay it. 
the price for this? Are you willing? Did he come willingly? Or was the father putting a gun to us and says, you will do this? No, he says, I willingly take that, lay down my life and I willingly take it up. Paul said this, when he understood, he says, while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemy, he loved us and he laid down his life for us. He willingly did it. He was able, he was willing, and he was worthy. Why was he worthy? Because it tells us in verse 6, the one criteria for worthiness was it says, for he conquered. Worthy. Because he conquered. What did he conquer? He conquered my passions. He conquered my sin. He conquered my pain and my sorrow. He conquered your sin and your sorrow. He conquered the enemy of sin and death and disease and everything else that goes with it. He conquered. And in the conquering, it made him worthy. He was worthy to come and to take the scroll. This is not a fairy tale, folks. This is reality. This really happened with a real man named Jesus. Psalm 24 alludes to this. There's this angel in heaven. He sees Jesus coming. Jesus, fresh from his victory at Golgotha. Jesus, fresh, still wounds here, but in his glorified body. And all of heaven is ready for a celebration. And they're excited. They sense something as big is about to happen. What is it? And all of a sudden, the angel out at the front looks down. He says, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, for the king of glory is coming in. Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord, strong and mighty. And in case anybody was still sleeping, he shouts it again. Lift up your heads, oh, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. Who is this king of glory? He's the king of glory, triumphant in splendor and magnificence. Step aside, and there Jesus walks in. And this is the point we pick up in Revelation 5 when John is crying. And someone taps him on the shoulder and says, no, 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 no. There's one. What, there's one? Yeah, there's one. The devil had his shot. He could have come and said something. Well, God says, here it is. Anybody want it? Anyone worthy? Somehow, where's the devil during this? Why didn't he show up? He says he's such a big shot, right? Surely he can take it. Silence. Where is he? Probably in hell, quivering with his other demons. There ain't no way he's going to say a word. What about all of the great generals? Hitler's so awesome, isn't he? What a hot shot Putin is. Trump thinks he's great. There's so many who think they're so awesome. What about all the Hollywood elites? They know so much. They can mock God. All right, here you go. You want it? You think you're such a shot, hot shot? You can take over. Here you go. Silence. What about in heaven? Surely Michael, Gabriel, they're pretty hot, right? They're pretty powerful. Here you go. Your shot. Lucifer, he wanted a shot. He took his shot back in the garden, right? He didn't win. All right, here's the rest of you. It's free. I'm not even going to shoot you down. If you're worthy, you can have it. No one. When someone taps John on the shoulder, he says, hang on. Hang on. There's one. He's coming. He is the king of glory. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. The victorious one. And then he uses this little statement, the seed of David. Why does he say that? Because he has to be of the same tribe. He's got to be of the same kindred. He's a man. A man has triumphed. There's one. He has conquered. What did he conquer? There on Golgotha, he was nailed to a tree. And the physical, yeah, you know, if you saw the passion of Christ, which uh, that moved me. I took my neighbor who wasn't a Christian. I showed it to my kids. It's very riveting seeing the price that Christ paid. But, you know, 
that just shows a, that only shows a glimpse of what happened. You only see the physical. What you don't really see is the tremendous spiritual battle that was taking place. For on the cross, all of the demons of hell were coming at him. Do you remember in the garden, three and a half years earlier, when he was being tempted for 40 days and, and the devil couldn't pull one on him? And it says this statement, and the devil left for a more opportune time. You know when that opportune time was? On the cross. At his weakest moment. And the enemy came at him, all the hordes of hell, the big, the strong, the ugly, the bad, they're coming at him. And he's there flinging them off and flinging them off and flinging them off. You can't see it. On the outside, you just see this. But in the spiritual realm, there's, a, there's warfare waged. We're told in Colossians 2 that on the cross, he made an open show of them. You couldn't see it, but all the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms saw the swarming demon hordes coming at him, and he's battling them, and he's battling them, and they're saying, curse God, curse God, curse God. Come off that throne if you're so awesome. Come off that cross. You don't need these people. They don't even love you. They won't even obey you. Come off. You can have all the nations. You don't need that. Take the short track straight on to heaven. You can get it all. You don't need this. Go get the glory. And he's fighting them off and fighting them off and fighting off their temptation. The Bible says every temptation that is known to man, he fought it. At that moment, it's all coming at him. What tempts you? He fought it and he won. He conquered. But it wasn't just that, right? On the cross, the Bible says that all sin was placed. He who knew no sin was made to be sin. We usually say, oh, God stuck some. No, no, they didn't stick it on him. He was made to be sin. The very vile thing that God hates. You ready for this? The wrath of Almighty God was poured out on him. The undiluted, unfiltered, unreserved totality of the wrath of God. You know when God, when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, his wrath was poured out, right? And poof, there was nothing, right? When he said, when he created the world, he said, and let there be light, that much power. There was that much power behind his wrath to destroy sin. And Jesus absorbed that measure of wrath for us. The wrath of God was poured out on this man. If it was any mere man, however, he would have just... But this man, who was God, very God, was able to absorb the wrath of an eternal God. And not just for a minute or two. When I was a kid and I'd get in trouble, one time I threw a rock through a window at a school and smashed it. Another time I beat a kid up. Another time I threw a rock and... Cracked a kid's head open. One time I cussed out the principal of a Catholic school. That's not good. Yeah. Sister Frank, don't cuss out Sister Frank. That will incur wrath. You know, I come home, my mom says, wait till your dad gets home. You know, you know I'm shaking like this until he comes home. And when he comes home, I'm, like, oh, I'm a dead man. And I was almost dead. And took me in the bedroom, you know, used the rod. He really took that whole rod thing serious, you know. But, you know, after like 10 minutes and your butt is beat red, the wrath is over. It's done, right? It subsides. Not with Jesus. Hour after hour, wave upon wave. The wrath of not an earthly father for busting some kid's head open, but the wrath of God for all sin, for all time, was poured out on this one man. What we didn't see was that God's back was turned. Darkness was over the Lord. Demons of hell coming at him. Wrath upon wrath upon wrath. The physical torment he went through. And he said, by his own admission, all you do is say one word, 12,000 angels, I'm out of here, it's good. But because of his love, he looked down through the corridors of time and he saw you. He says, well, that one, 
That's what Paul says, open my eyes to understand the, 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 the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He saw you. You are his inheritance. And he's like, for them, for that inheritance, I want that inheritance. I will stay. He willingly, and he conquered. And after many hours, sometime around noon, he sensed in his soul that the wrath of God was satisfied because it began to subside. If you could have looked at the base of the cross, you would have seen mountains of demons, bloody nose, beat up, tossed down. No other demon come at Adam. He beat them all. He's standing there. It's finished. It's done. Father, into your hands I willingly give my soul. He conquered. He was triumphant. Where no other man could, he did. He was triumphant. And he ascends into heaven. The angel sees him. He ascends the throne. John, his hope begins to rise. He sees this lamb walk up and take the scroll from the right hand of God. He takes it, and all of heaven bursts forth into praise. Let's read it. Let's read this new song. It was so exciting they had to make up a new song. Via, I heard some new, new lines today, too. What a beautiful name. I don't know if, that, if you made that up. It was beautiful. I don't know where it came from, but I never heard that before. It was a new song for me, and I loved it. And they sang a new song because this was so amazing. And they sang a new song. They said, worthy, Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. And with your blood, you ransomed people for God. Not just Caucasians, not just Americans, not just Guatemalans, not just Africans or the Chinese or the Japanese or the Russian or the British or any from every nation. Not just English speakers, not just Spanish, every language. Every people, young and old, rich and poor, feeble and strong, and every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. This was being sung by the 24 elders and the four living creatures. But at this point, the celebration in heaven kicks into a new gear. And thousands and millions of angels and then it says every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every creature, every person, every bird, every tree, every rock, every frog, every butterfly, every everything began to say, you are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power and might forever and ever and ever and ever. This is a true story. This really happened. It really happened when Jesus ascended into heaven because he had conquered. You know what I love? Just a little side note here. He conquered, right? If you go to uh, Revelation 6, verses 1 and 2, you'll find that after he opens the first seal, an angel says, hey, John, look. And boom, 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 out comes a man, a king with a crown, riding forth on a white horse to conquer 
are conquering and ultimately to conquer. It was a picture of Jesus taking off from that moment on a white horse, victorious, down through the corridors of history, bringing forth the good news of his gospel, slaying all of his enemies, slaying the sin in my life and the sin in your life, the addictions and the, the bad attitudes. He went forth conquering and ultimately to conquer. But by the time you come to the end of the book, you know what's there? Again, in chapter 19 at the wedding supper of the Lamb, there's Jesus on a white horse with a crown, faithful and true, a name that no one knows, riding out in white robe. And you know what it says? And behind him was a multitude of the saints on white horses with white robes, riding with him through the corridor of time. Jesus is the most magnificent discipler for he, he rallies the troops and now it's you and I in the spiritual realm on white horses, robed in righteousness, riding forth with him down through the corridors of time, slaying the enemies of Christ, slaying addiction. Thank you, men, whoever is bold enough to do that teaching on pornography because it is slaying our land inside our church. So let's just call it what it is, put it on the table and say, you know what? I struggle with this too. But you know what? Here's what I found in the Word. Will you, brother, stand with me? And next week when we get together, would you ask me if I've had any struggles on the Internet and a magazine or in my mind? Would you just ask me that? Because you know what? It's going to make me think twice then this week about doing it, all right? And really, I love my wife, and I don't want to go down that road, all right? So will you, brothers, help me? Gentlemen, please show up, all right? Because statistics show 70% of you are probably struggling with this. Women, don't freak out. You're probably struggling with different things like dripping on your wife and a bad mouth and all these other things. Sorry. But I'm just saying, we struggle, don't we? But we are on white horses, robed in righteousness, no condemnation, right? We've been forgiven, cleansed, no condemnation, robed in righteousness, and riding with Jesus. So let's just hit these enemies head on, deal with them, and bring victory, and see God's kingdom extend in our life and the lives of those around us, right? Isn't that awesome? Not just one king on a horse. His people. He's made us a kingdom of priests. I love the New King James Version. It actually says... He has made us kings and priests to serve our God in the earth. Not in the, not in the sweet by and by. I'll wrap it up with this. In this story is your story. Your story is in here. Yeah, it's the story of humanity. But in here, your story is in here. That's why Jeremiah looked in and he, he got a chance to peek and he goes, oh! I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Oh, my gosh. You're not going to believe what's in here. It's too good. If I told you, it, it's just too good. You, you wouldn't believe it. And you say, well, what should I do? I'm going through a tough time. Just believe. Just be patient. Just walk with him. That's why Paul in Romans 8 said, those he called and who love him, he works all things to work together for their good. You know, you hear a teaching like this, and you think, oh, that's great. It's all ethereal. It's all spiritual in the heavenlies. But man, I'm going through something. I'm going through a struggle. I got a situation. I got a confrontation staring me in the face. My job isn't working out, and I don't know if this is the career I want. My wife and I aren't getting along too well. I'm not sure about one of my children. And these situations stare us in the face. What about that? Right? We, we ask those questions in our soul when we drive home. Lord, how do I apply this, right? I had cancer when I was 23, stage 4 Hodgkin's cancer. Prognosis wasn't good. I asked the Lord, what's going on with this? I don't understand it. Went through nine months of intensive chemo, touch and go. But you know, 
the Lord saw me through that. My wife, when I met her at, when we were eight years old, all, I knew growing up, all she wants to do is be a mom. That's all she wants. She wants to be a mom. She's a mom. She's, she's happy, right? Went through cancer. We tried for many years to have kids. Couldn't have kids. Some of you have gone through this. You know, maybe that time of the month comes, and you're all excited. Maybe it could be. Maybe it could You're disappointed again. Every month, month after month, year after year, that disappointment comes. Lord, how can this be? How is this good, Lord? Everyone around us seems like all they got to look do is look at each other, and they get pregnant, you know, and we're reading the books and doing the moves, and they ain't working, you know? <laughs> Whoops! What do you say? TMI? Yeah, TMI. <laughs> Sorry, didn't mean to be R-rated. I don't know, but I know this, that the Lord took my wife and I and took us on a journey, and he's brought five beautiful children into our life. And of all the things that God has done in our lives, beyond walking with Christ and my wife, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened in my life. There's, take it all. You can have it all. I don't really care. The greatest thing in my life is what my, my God has done with five children in my life. He takes all things. And for those who are patient and will continue to walk with him, and they're just patient and they love and obey, he'll turn it off for our good and for his glory. In the meantime, what do you do? In the meantime, what do you do? Look to Jesus. Isn't he wonderful? Can I invite Fee? I don't know how you guys do that here, but if you would come and lead us in a song. Isn't it wonderful just looking at him? I want to say one last thing. I believe the Lord put this on my heart this week. For someone here, maybe there's more. Maybe there's a real big sorrow in your heart right now. Maybe there's a sorrow. I know there is in my heart. There's a friend who's going through a, a horrible thing. And this week as I was praying, my heart was just crying for him because I see the destruction that's happening all around him and my heart was breaking, full of sorrow. And the Lord reminded me of this, and I think it's for someone here, maybe more, that he was acquainted with sorrow. He was well familiar with it. He was a man of many sorrows. He knew sorrow. And you know, since he's the infinite God, he knew it perfectly. And since he's a God who never forgets, he chooses not to remember our sin, but he remembers all the other stuff. The Bible says that on the cross, he took our sorrows. Do you know on the cross, he felt your sorrow? If I could take that sorrow that you have, and I could put a number to it, an item number. He felt that specific sorrow. And all of his being was focused in on that sorrow. That one. He didn't just take sorrow generally. He took your sorrow and he carried it to the cross and he felt the pain in all of its intensity and he paid the price and he left it on the tree but even to this day he remembers it if you talk to him about it he's like yeah i carried that one too the one you I, I carried it i remember since he doesn't forget he remembers it perfectly what it felt like he knows exactly what you're going through in that sorrow and that pain is there in his heart so we cry out to him when we talk to him and he totally gets it and he hears it and he's like i know i know i have a solution just be, will you trust me? Will you just walk with me? But Lord, I need it. No, 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 just trust me. What you need right now is to look to me and worship me. That's what you need. So let's all stand and let's worship him because that's what we need. We just need to worship him for how glorious and magnificent he is. Amen.